Welcome back to The Plane Crash Diaries with me, your host and pilot, Desmond Latham. Every week we delve into the history of plane crashes and discover how these have led to an understanding of how to improve systems and training over the more than 100 years of commercial aviation. It's time for a terrible acronym, CFIT, C-F-I-T, which means Controlled Flight into Terrain. That's where the pilot is unable to see the terrain for whatever reason and believes that he or she is higher than they are or they're somewhere else or the equipment on board has failed and altitude readings are wrong. This often happens unfortunately when what's known as a letdown is being flown. That's a technique that allows a pilot to pass hills and other obstructions before they are let down to a low altitude with radar or radio assistance. There are a few other reasons for controlled flight into terrain, including suicide, which was the case with the infamous German Wings accident of 2015, where a mentally unhinged officer locked the captain out of the cockpit and proceeded to fly a packed Airbus A320 into a Swiss mountainside. All 144 passengers and crew were killed in what was not pilot error, it was pilot suicide. But it was also what's known as CFIT. One of the earliest examples that led to changes in training took place on the 7th of August 1946 on the Mistbicket Mountain in Norway, then another in November of the same year on the Gowerli Glacier in Switzerland. The first accident involved British European Airways Flight 530, which was a Douglas C-47 Skytrain. Three of the five crew on board died, but amazingly all ten passengers survived. It's known as the Mistbicket Accident. The British European Airways aircraft was en route on a scheduled flight from London's Croydon Airport and crashed during approach at Oslo. The Douglas C-47A5DK Skytrain Registration Gulf Alpha Hotel Charlie Sierra was first flown in 1944 during the Second World War. After hostilities ceased, the Skytrain was bought by BEA, which was operating a service from its home base in Croydon near London to Oslo Airport, Khadamun. It should be noted that Kharamun was actually Oslo's secondary airport. The main central airport was Fonabu. However, BEA opted to use Kharamun because the runway there was longer and the company was also operating the Vickers VC Viking aircraft, which needed more distance to take off and land. Two of the ten passengers on board were Norwegian. The rest were British. This was an example of a number of factors that combined to cause an accident, which is so often the case. At the time of the accident, there was cloud cover of 10 tenths and a cloud base of 1,000 feet, according to the crash report. In other words, it was totally clouded over. Visibility was 15 kilometers, though, which is more than sufficient. Mispigat Mountain is 2,205 feet high, so the cloud base was way below the summit, a potentially dangerous situation if there's anything wrong with the navigation equipment or the pilots. The passenger account seems to support the view that the cloud base was as low as 1,000 feet as reported. So on the 7th of August 1946 at 1300 hours 44, the radio operator on board the Douglas C-47 asked air traffic control for permission to land using the low frequency radio range navigation system. Aircraft in 1946 used a very basic form of radio instrument receiver called an NDB or non-directional beacon. This was literally a radio beacon that could be located by a receiver on board the plane, which was then also usually fitted with a marker beacon receiver. That's important for gauging distance, or else all the pilot really knows is that he or she is on a specific track, but not how far they are from the beacon itself. 
Unfortunately for the crew, the marker beacon receiver was not working on the NDB equipment on board the plane. This would have implications for the passengers and crew of BEA Flight 530. Khartamun confirmed the request for permission to land using the low-frequency radio range navigation system and noted that the Douglas C-47 was the only aircraft in the area. There was no further radio communication between the aircraft and air traffic control. On the ground, people heard the aircraft pass the radio range station located 8 kilometers or 5 miles north of the airport and a few minutes later, it flew into trees on the eastern face of Mispicket Mountain at an altitude of 2,030 feet, just below the summit. If they'd been 175 feet higher, we would possibly not be talking about this accident. Afterwards, passengers described how the flight seemed to be progressing well until they noticed the trees whizzing past their windows through the clouds. The aircraft ploughed a 100-meter-long section of forest before it came to a halt. At the time, it was heading south, parallel with the face of the mountain, which probably saved most on board. It wasn't a head-on collision. The commission concluded that the aircraft was under pilot control at the time of impact, or as we call it, CFIT, controlled flight, into terrain. The impact of the accident caused the engines to be knocked off and they slid 20 meters past the airframe. Debris lay scattered in the area with a propeller blade found 50 meters away. Three of the crew members, the captain, first officer and radio operator, all in front, were killed in the collision. Miraculously, all ten passengers were alive, although two were critically injured. Six other passengers had various injuries, but two were unhurt, one British and one Norwegian, and they walked from the wreck to a nearby farm where they were able to notify authorities about the accident by telephone. A crew of rescue workers were immediately dispatched from Khardamun, they remained at the site until dusk. The time was needed to get the steward free from the wreck. He and a passenger were severely injured and were freighted by car to Stensby Hospital. The rest of the passengers were able to walk by themselves and retreated for shock and cuts. Norway's Ministry of Transport and Communications swiftly appointed an investigation on the same day. It was led by Major Hal and consisted of Assistant Chief of Police Skalmorut, Engineer Truls Dahl, Pilot Odd Olsen, Captain Thorleif Eriksson and a representative for British aviation authorities. Their report was published quickly by today's standards less than six months later in January 1947. They concluded that the pilot was in full control of the aircraft and that there were no mechanical faults. It was found that the cause was pilot error, or improper airmanship as they called it, caused by insufficient training in radio range navigation combined with a shortcoming in the equipment. The radio range system had recently been calibrated twice and the commission found nothing wrong with the navigational aids other than it was turned to compass north instead of antenna north. What this means is that the beam north of the Cone of Silence, what's known as the Cone of Silence, was a hefty 20 degrees wide instead of just 4 degrees. What that meant is that instead of there being a small area where the pilot would be unsure of his position, it was 20 degrees wide. That was further compounded by the fact that the aircraft's radio range equipment also lacked a marker beacon receiver due to a lack of sufficient parts. What this did is force the pilots to manually calculate the distance to the beacon based on a map and time. The crew carried out the procedural turn in the right area, but should, according to their route instruction book, have been at no lower an altitude than 3,300 feet. Thus, the aircraft was too low, caused by what is known as the letdown being started too early.
I've practiced many letdowns for instrument flying training. You're flying on instruments and must trust these, particularly in thick cloud when you're bouncing around or at night when you can't see much. That's tricky. The purpose of an instrument letdown is to bring an aircraft past all hills and obstructions to a particular position at lower height. You can't see a thing and must focus all your attention on the instruments. In those days, it would have been what's known as the six-pack, six instruments that are crucial. The altimeter, airspeed indicator, vertical speed indicator, artificial horizon, turn and slip indicator, and of course, the non-directional beacon receiver. If the pilot follows the correct procedure, the aircraft will obviously clear the hills and obstructions. But when you're coping with the list of things going on on board, instrument power, other aircraft, reporting positions, looking at your map, trying to use a bit of mental math to gauge speed and distance, this can get more difficult. The problem then is if you don't follow the procedure exactly, you will overrun points for turning and descent, or you may turn and descend too soon. And these things happen very quickly indeed. When a pilot is stressed, decision-making is more difficult. If you know you're out of position, this normally entails an immediate intervention, as any hesitation could be fatal. All pilots must have a mental image of the mountains and other obstructions near the airport and where they are in relation to these obstructions. The only way to present this information quickly and unambiguously is by making hills and obstructions principal features on what are known as let-down charts. These have developed over the years, and now most pilots use far more advanced avionics based on GPS and what's known as Guinness or GNSS to navigate and other systems. Modern commercial planes and even general aviation little planes have ground proximity warning systems or GPWS. But at times, as sunspot activity causes issues with satellites, we have to revert to the tried and tested VOR or omnidirectional very high frequency beacons. The older NDBs that this plane was using are generally being phased out across the world as they're susceptible to radio and electrical storms and other interference. Training in navigational beacons and their use would have to be improved, the report concluded after this accident. And no instrument flying should take place without an NDB distance being readable by the device. As we know in this case, the distance measuring equipment was faulty. A few months later, Another Seafoot accident took place in Switzerland involving a C-53 Skytrooper passenger variant of the Douglas DC-3, and that was on the 18th of November 1946, which further reinforced the required changes. This is also an important event and had multinational repercussions and led to the turning point in Alpine rescue. The aircraft took off from Taln in Austria, close to Vienna, and was bound for Pisa in Italy, carrying 12, 8 passengers, 4 crew. But... It collided with the Gaoli Glacier in poor visibility. On board were two high-ranking American officers, as well as four women and one 11-year-old girl. In this incident, several people were injured, but there were no fatalities. Little did they all know that it would take five days before they were rescued. Because of bad weather, the plane was taking a roundabout route via Munich, Strasbourg, Dijon and Marseille, which meant a two-day flight to cover the 950-kilometer total distance. There were thick clouds about, and the pilots were flying in what's known as Instrument Meteorological Conditions, or IMC. Similar circumstances to the Misbegit accident. Near Innsbruck in Austria, the pilots became disorientated as they avoided several alpine peaks in the cloudy conditions and experienced quite heavy turbulence. 
At 2.45 in the afternoon, the aircraft crashed on Gaoli Glacier, flying at a speed of around 174 miles per hour, that's around 280 kilometers per hour, and at an altitude of 10,900 feet. Now they were stranded. The crew first thought they were in the French Alps, but these were some distance away. An hour after the crash, the crew was able to send emergency radio messages, which were received at Orly Airport and at the Istre-la-Tube airbase near Marseille, which then used trigonometry to triangulate the position of the stricken plane. A large search-and-rescue operation began. Two days later, the control tower at Swiss Air Force Base Meringen, which was around 12 kilometers away from the glacier, received their radio calls, giving a new radio bearing and narrowed the search area to the Gaoli Glacier. Eventually, on the 22nd of November, a Royal Air Force Lancaster spotted the aircraft through a break in the cloud cover. The crew managed to plot the location, and later that day, when the clouds cleared, search aircraft were sent to the location. Now a large rescue operation swung into action. On the 23rd of November, in the afternoon, two Swiss soldiers on skis reached their stricken aircraft and its passengers after a 13-hour ascent from Interkirchen, but it was too late for a descent on the same day. So it was decided to wait at the wreck overnight. They endured temperatures of minus 15 degrees centigrade. That's about 5 degrees Fahrenheit. The next day, everyone descended towards the Alpine Club's Gaoli hut at 7,200 feet, failing to make radio contact with the coordinators in the valley. By mid-morning on the 24th of November, Swiss Air Force pilots Captain Victor Huch and Major Pista Hitz managed to land two Fiesler Stoch aircraft on the glacier next to the rescuers, and eight takeoffs and landings later, everyone was flown to safety. These Stochs are tiny spotter planes with fixed undercarriages. The Swiss Army had tested snow landings in these planes during the winter of 1944 and 45, and suddenly these practice landings had come into sharp relief. After World War II, the diplomatic relationship between Switzerland and the United States was uncertain. That's because the Swiss maintained neutrality during the war. But after this successful rescue, the political climate actually improved, in part because the rescue work was prominently covered by the American and international media. The rescue operation would have repercussions a decade later, when the Swiss were asked to support the rescue and salvage efforts after the 1956 Grand Canyon mid-air collision. I've mentioned this accident before, and we'll return to it in a later podcast. That was the collision that led to an outcry and new rules about flight corridors to avoid mid-air crashes. The more lasting impact of the Gaoli Glacier incident was that the rescue of aircraft passengers in alpine terrain was suddenly a real thing. The crash on the Gaoli Glacier led directly to the birth of Swiss Air Rescue, and in 1952, the Swiss Air Rescue Guard, or Rega, was founded. This story has a more modern end. In 2018, the remains of the Douglas C-53 Skytrooper that crashed in 1946 actually emerged on the Gaoli Glacier thanks to global warming, and subsequently, the Swiss Army has been working to recover the wreck and clean up the site. We're in the short history section of the podcast, and this week I'm looking at the earliest example of CFIT, Controlled Flight Interterrain, or CFIT. We're also going to hear about the development of the Ground Proximity Warning System, or GPWS. I mentioned this early in the podcast too. The most modern example of these is now called the Terrain Awareness Warning System, or TORS. One of the first examples of CFIT was the 1920 Handley Page crash, 
which took place on the 14th of December when the aircraft ploughed into trees flying low in bad weather. It was on a scheduled passenger flight from London to Paris with two crew and six passengers when it came down at Golders Green in North London after takeoff from Cricklewood Aerodrome. The crew of two and two passengers were killed in the first fatal accident for the airline since the service started in December 1919. It was also one of the earliest recorded airliner crashes and, ironically, involved controlled flight into terrain. This was to become the bane of aviation. Aircraft and poor visibility unfortunately crashing into terrain regularly over the next 80 years. It would take an American inventor working in the early 1990s to come up with a solution. As the number of planes increased, they began to impact the ground at an alarming rate, particularly in the 1970s and 80s. And many did not involve mechanical or weather-related issues. Often, it was the pilot who was distracted that caused the crash. In 1970, a flight carrying the Marshall University football team hit a hill while attempting to land in Huntington in Virginia. The pilots had executed their descent or let down below the minimum descent altitude. Tragically, all were killed. The pilots seemed to lose situational awareness. Then, Eastern Airlines Flight 401 descended into the Everglades. On December 29, 1972, all on board died there. This was followed by TWA Flight 514, which flew into a mountain on December 1, 1974, as it approached Washington's Dulles Airport. Eastern suffered another disastrous accident in La Paz, Bolivia, in January 1985, when a 727 flew into Mount Illimani. Hundreds of passengers died. This obviously could not continue. Engineer and inventor Don Bateman then stepped up in the early 1990s, reasoning that if accurate location information was compared with three-dimensional maps, a computer could determine if ground impact was likely and provide warning to the pilots in time to take the necessary action. Bateman's invention was eventually installed in most commercial airliners by the mid-1990s. It reduced the number of CFIT accidents, but unfortunately they continued because the system was not yet mandatory. During the night of December 20, 1995, American Airlines Flight 965 approached Cali in Colombia. The pilots had complex navigational challenges and misunderstood what the flight management computer was telling them. The Boeing 757 turned out of the valley and straight into mountainous terrain. While the onboard GPWS finally did provide a warning, it was too late. The airplane slammed into a mountainside. Another CFIT accident. Following this accident, airlines began to equip their planes with improved GPWS known as Enhanced Ground Proximity Warning, EGPWS. The number of CFIT accidents began to decrease as the number of EGPWS saves increased. Bateman's system was working. The FAA recognized the need for the safety enhancement to be mandated. In 2000, all airliners were required to install EGPWS, which has now been developed further and is called, fortunately, Terrain Awareness Warning System, TORS. This technology would dramatically reduce one of the most common accident types. Today, the rate of CFIT accidents is much lower, but still takes place, particularly involving general aviation. I fly a Cirrus SR20 and 22 variations, which have TORS installed, and it saved my bacon at least once, particularly at night. That's it for this week. Next week, we'll hear about the effect of lightning on aeroplanes.
and I'll take you through a really interesting report by the Civil Aviation Board in the USA, which investigated an accident near Lovettsville in Virginia in 1940. The Douglas DC-3, operated by Pennsylvania Central Airlines, was being flown by a highly experienced pilot who had over 11,000 hours. But it took a flash of lightning to condemn all on board. So please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. You can also contact me through a direct message on Twitter at Des Latham if you have any comments or questions. Until then, aviate, navigate and communicate safely. Goodbye.